Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the final episode, yes, the final episode of Celebration of Cinema, or according to our logo, Celebrate Our Cinemas. We really should have collaborated more closely on that one. It's a limited edition series of podcasts brought to you by Empire in association with Meerkat Movies from Compare the Market. This is the sixth episode out of six. Oh, it is the last one. So hopefully you're aware of the format by now, but just in case you are a first-timer, it's very simple. We love cinema here at Empire, and we love the act of cinema going. And during the pandemic and the many lockdowns that followed, cinema itself was under dire threat. So now that cinemas are back open again and we can go to see movies in the dark with a bunch of strangers, we decided to celebrate that by having me chat to people from the world of film about the theatrical experiences that helped shape them. What was a film that lit a fire under their cinematic backsides? What film made them laugh the most or scared the bejesus out of them the most? What's their favourite cinema in the whole wide world? And perhaps most important of all, what's their movie snack of choice? Our final guest is a bit of a belter. Elijah Wood is many things. He is the star of one of the most beloved franchises of all time, of course. That's Lord of the Rings, in case you weren't sure. He's an actor who makes consistently interesting choices. He is a producer of fine films, genre and otherwise. He's an all-round good egg and a big old cinephile with a deep and abiding passion for going to the pictures. That became evident when I caught up with him last week over Zoom and we got deep into the weeds of his love for cinema, talking about the movie houses that fired him up, some of the films that entranced him, and also the experience of watching movies with a young baby, now that he is a new parent. You can see Elijah in his new film, No Man of God, when it launches on digital on Monday 13th of September. It's a compelling two-hander between Elijah, who plays FBI agent Bill Hagmeyer, and Luke Kirby, who plays notorious serial killer Ted Bundy. And it's based on interviews that Hagmeyer actually conducted with Bundy back in the 80s, which were the inspiration for pretty much every subsequent film and TV show in which an FBI profiler has a meeting of the minds and a battle of the wills with a fiendish monster and is one heck of an acting showcase for both men. So in this interview, Elijah and I talk about that for the first 10 minutes or so before segueing smoothly into discussion of his cinema-going life. I had a lot of fun, and I hope you guys do too. Here's Elijah Wood. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this Celebration of Cinema special podcast by the star and producer of No Man of God, Mr. Elijah Wood. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, good, good. Whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Los Angeles. It's actually quite gloomy. We're having real English weather today, which I'm quite grateful for. <laughs> uh, you know, we've, we've had a pretty brutal and long summer, as we did last year as well. So to have any kind of cloudiness and cool weather is uh, it's a welcome respite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's all we have. <laughs> I, mean, I, look I know. Out. I know. I recognize that I'm, yeah, it's the, it's the only weather you have. So I apologize. It's 6 PM. It. I have the light on. I'm thinking about putting the heating on. It's the first of September. What the hell is going on? It's all wrong. <laughs> it is all wrong. Uh, but congratulations. We were just speaking off, off mic there, but uh, congratulations to no man of God. I mean, uh, it's, 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 Really interesting two-hander between yourself and Luke Kirby. Uh, I honestly could have watched a two, two and a half hour version of of you guys just 
chatting. I made it sound there like it's a fun buddy comedy. It is absolutely <laughs> not that whatsoever. It is an investigation into the mind of Ted Bundy, but it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Was that what drew you to it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's ultimately the script that drew our attention. You know, I think I, I share, as many people do, an interest in in true crime and, and yeah. you know, the sort of psychology of what makes people like Ted tick. Uh, I mean, since I was a teenager. But this particular story was just fascinating because it wasn't something I was familiar with. This pr- particular relationship between Bill and Ted yeah. uh, was very different Bill and Ted. To what people yeah, might be used to. Bill and Ted. Very yeah. different Bill and Ted. <laughs> um, but the, the fact that the script predominantly is in one room, in this interrogation room yeah. set over the course of four years with these conversations that actually took place you know, largely based on transcripts and and the recollections of Bill uh, was just so, so fascinating. Um, I'd never really seen anything like it. And, it, and again, it was a, a part of Ted's life that I was just not familiar with. That's fascinating to me as well. It is based on transcripts and tape recordings that Bill Hagmeyer actually did of his interviews with, with Ted Bundy. And did that mean that you and Luke... Do you, how much freedom did you have in terms of your interpretations? Did, were you at times trying to hit what was said verbatim, even down to glances and ums and ahs? No. no? Okay. No, no, thankfully. Because I don't even know if we had the actual audio trend. Like, I don't know that we had the audio of those interviews specifically. We had a lot of audio of Ted and interviews with Ted. In fact, you know, in the film, there's a, a series of interviews with various investigators from different parts of the country who come to Florida to try and get more information out of him. Yeah. Those interviews we had. Um, so te- interestingly enough, Luke was able to actually take some things that weren't in the script from the audio and add them into the film, which was really cool. But the actual interviews between Bill and Ted, I don't we didn't have access to those. Uh, but we had everything else, interviews with Bill, sort of all the architecture around them that bolstered the truth of what those what those scenes were. But, you know, kind of beautifully, we didn't have to we didn't have to sort of fit within something that was a rigid structure. Uh, we were able to sort of play within that. And I think for us, the you know, the work that we were doing prior to going into those rooms or into that room was to just work out the architecture of what was said between those people and figure out, you know, like classic kind of uh, script analysis, scene breakdown style, like where is there a shift in the, the, the dynamic what's mm. being said versus versus what's actually being said, but subtextually and kind of working out all of those architectural elements so that when we got to set, we were able to play within that structure kind of comfortably and play around because we built the building blocks so strongly, I think. And, you know, we would certainly do passes that were really sort of traditional based on where we, what we felt was done and said. And then, you know, each of those scenes took about a day to shoot. So we were able to, to have the space to play around too. And Amber would throw things at us that were kind of abstract and, and sort of interesting and fun and maybe discordant. And we would just play a little bit, um, which kept us as actors on our toes. And I think added some sort of character to it that was really interesting. Um, but in answer to your question, yes, mm-hmm. we, we, we actually were able to play a fair amount. No, no, um, 
didn't, we weren't ad-libbing or anything. Like there was no improv. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, we were sticking to the script, uh, which was hard enough as it was, because there was a lot of dialogue to remember. But yeah, we were able to play a little bit. Because the, the, the program itself, the FBI profiling program that, that Bill was part of, because that in turn inspired things like Thomas Harris's Manhunter, Red Dragon, as, which then became Michael Mann's Manhunter, of course, and yeah. uh, Silence of the Lambs. And, you know, now we're, you know, we've got Mindhunter as well on Netflix. There's this, there's a whole almost subgenre of FBI profiler movies yeah. and, and TV shows. How hard, yeah. how aware were you of that, obviously? And how hard was it to make sure that you were escaping the shadow of those, those, uh, those works that had come before? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, we, you know, the process of getting into an independent film made can, can often take a lot of time. And in this case, it was about five years. Wow. And in the time, in the span of that time, Mindhunter actually got made and subsequently had two seasons. So we were very aware and recognized, you know, that that was, that was doing functionally a very similar thing to what we were doing. But we also recognized that it was doing it differently. That um, we, we, you know, whilst we shared this sort of, you know, profiler sitting opposite murderer dynamic, and that, you know, a good portion of of what it is we were doing and they were doing was sort of, you know, diving into those conversations. It, Mindhunter was different. It's slightly more dynamic. It's a little bit more about the profilers than the actual, you know, serial killers themselves there was a dy- dynamic thing happening there that we knew was different to what we yeah. were doing. Yeah. We kind of kept a al- weirdly aligning ourselves. We would early days, we would reference the film as the frost Nixon of, uh, of Ted Bundy films <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it, it's just a series of conversations yeah. um, that, you know, kind of dives into this psychology, but also it's about what happens when you're faced with that. What do you take from that relationship? as the profiler, what, what do you walk away with? And then specifically in the case of Ted and Bill, you know, Ted asks a very specific question, which sort of becomes a thesis for the, the whole movie, which is, could you kill someone? Mm-hmm. Ted believing that anybody's capable of doing it. Bill believing that you have to be a psychopath to do what he did. Yeah. And that became a real driving sort of narrative force of, of our story as well. So, yeah, we weren't, I mean, you know, to kind of go back to recognizing that the zeitgeist was being populated, not just with with that particular relationship being described in in the context of cinema, but also Bundy in the context of, you know, the four years or five years it took to get the movie made. There were, I think, two Bundy documentaries that came Mm -hmm. out and also the the Zac Efron Bundy film as well which yeah. was more specific to Bundy's trial than it was to his incarceration um all of that we you know we sort of recognized as being a part of you know a, a zeitgeist of people who are interested in this kind of thing and i i suppose if anything it gave us fuel to push on and make our film unique and and stand on its own, you know. And I believe it it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. Is that is that correct? Yes, it a, did. a few weeks yeah. ago. Now was that was that with an audience? It was actually. Yeah, it was back in June and it was um it was outside. So they they did outdoor screenings for any of their audience attended screenings were all outdoors. So ours was 
was um, near Chelsea Piers, um, kind of on, on this, this sort of massive platform, kind of in the pier area, uh, which was rad. It, was, it, it started to rain a little <laughs> while we were watching the movie, but it was just a drizzle, so it was kind of cozy. Uh, <laughs> but it was kind of incredible to be at a film festival again, you know. Uh, the closest thing to resembling being back at a film festival in attendance that we'd experienced yet. Um, and it was, it was lovely. Yeah. Have you, have you missed it? Have you missed the, uh, the cinema going experience? I have. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Of course. Um, you know, theaters have started to reopen. I'm sure that's been the case in, in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Sort of last summer, um, I guess, or no, earlier, earlier this summer, rather, sorry. Time is a bit strange in mm. COVID. Uh, uh, but yeah, earlier this summer, things started to open up around June, May, June, theaters started to open. And I went to see a couple of films. And it's, yeah, it's a relief to be back in the cinema again. Um, it's definitely something that we've missed. You know, prior to lockdown, my girlfriend and I have a, have a, a son who's, who's going to be two now, which is crazy. But Amazing. You know, prior to lockdown, he was, you know, in the first like six months, we were taking him to the Alamo um, downtown. We have an Alamo draft house here in L.A. Every Tuesday, they have a screening that uh, that's sort of like mid late morning into early afternoon. All of their movies do one screening a day. It's called Alamo for all screenings. And they're where you can bring a baby and the baby can cry, um, you know, if you've basically it's a it's a it's a it's the theater where you can bring people that can make a little bit of noise for not yeah. intentionally but just of as course. a natural sort of thing and the lights aren't quite fully dark and the sounds dimmed just a little bit and so we were doing that every tuesday and it was the fucking best and to not have that you know like we got used to this wonderful routine of taking our son to go see movies. And it was where mom and dad could go see whatever they wanted. Cause he was also sleeping at that time during all the movies. So what were you watching? What sort of films? Oh fuck. We <laughs> great movies. We saw Monos, the, I think it's oh my God. Film, uh, with the kids. That was incredible. We saw Joker. We saw the lighthouse. Um, we saw the tigers are not afraid. <laughs> all things that would not have been appropriate for him, but he was asleep. <laughs> I love that your son's first movie might have been Monos. So that's that's. I think it was. I think that's the first movie we took him to was Monos. That is amazing. Uh, weirdly yeah. enough, on last week's show, I'm so glad you mentioned the the Alamo because um, mm-hmm. the uh, Alamo Draft House because on last week's show when I was which was which had Sparks as a guest, you're a big music fan, oh, Elijah. Yeah. You, you, oh, awesome. ch- check it out. It's good. It's it's good listening. I, I'll tell you. Um, I so yeah. as I was as I was rounding the show off, I said next week's guest is Elijah Wood and I suspect the Alamo Draft House might get a bit of love. Is that your favorite cinema? Is that the one you gravitate to? I mean, I was thinking of the Alamo uh, Draft House in Austin specifically, but yes. LA as well. Yes. I mean, I, if I were to if I were to pinpoint one theater that I've spent the most amount of time in and, and have the most connection to from a heart place, it's the Alamo Draft House South Lamar in Austin. I've been, I have spent easily more time there than any other theater uh, in the world. And it's like, I've seen that theater also through various iterations over time. You know, I back I, early Fantastic Fests when they were there before they'd 
they'd added a whole new series of cinemas um, where it was just a giant big parking lot. And yeah, man, like that, that theater holds a very, very special place in my heart. And, you know, for some who are longtime Alamo draft house attendees, you know, obviously the original Colorado street, I think it was Colorado street. The first location was the kind of one for a lot of people. And I went there and when I was, in Austin in 1997, working on the faculty, I went to that. So my very first Alamo draft house experience was at the original Alamo. And I remember seeing Halloween projected on film and I'd seen Halloween many times prior to that, but I'd never seen it projected on film before. So that's a formative memory of mine. Actually, uh, I was 16 at the time and yeah, sitting in that theater with the vintage movie trailers playing ahead of time. Again, I think at that stage, they were all projecting those on film. It was before they'd moved to any kind of digital pre-show, you know, pre-cut thing. Yeah. It was pretty magical, you know, like, and, and you know, that theater was quite small. It was upstairs stadium seating, but it was, it was very intimate. It almost felt like a black box theater kind of in the, in its, in its structure. And there was a kind of intimacy to that. And then just the fun of like, going to see John Carpenter's Halloween on the big screen, you know, bucket of popcorn, these crazy trailers playing ahead of time. It was like, Oh fuck this. This is what a theater can be like. Yeah. Oh man, this is incredible. I love this. And also I love Austin, Texas. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty cool place. It It was pretty magical. Like that, that really cemented that summer really cemented like, a pretty deep, passionate love for that city. And, you know, I've, I've lived there. I've gone back a time and time again. I have so many dear friends there. So Austin will forever be a second home to me. You know, it's a, it's a really special place. And it's just so interesting that, that this, this kind of film community burst out of the seams of that city and still remains to this day and incredible filmmakers, obviously, you know, from Linklater to Mike Judge, these, Incredible voices, Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. sort of emerged out of this scene. And then, you know, these incredible film festivals, obviously South by Southwest prior to Fantastic Fest, kind of incredible that there were that, that there is this scene. Like what 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 about Austin? Why Austin? You know, why why didn't that happen in LA? Why didn't that happen anywhere else? And I'm sure there's a variety of reasons for it, but it, it is really fascinating because there's also this very receptive audience there. Yeah. That's the other thing I think that makes Austin so unique is films work there. You, you, you take something that is slightly left of center that may not necessarily be for what you would think a wide you know, audience consumption. You bring it to Austin and there is a rabid audience ready to consume. And it's just unparalleled. You know, there's no other place quite like it. And so much of what started percolating with the scene around the Alamo, I think, is has to do with that, too. I think it sort of built this this scene of of lovers of cinema um, Mm. and, you know, people who have a voracious appetite for all kinds of things, especially the weird and wonderful, you know. So what was the cinema then whenever you, you went to New Zealand to shoot Lord of the Rings? What was the cinema that you went to? The embassy. So the embassy is kind of Wellington's and it's an extraordinary movie house. It's massive. It's like, I I believe the embassy would have, it would have been a a theater for theatrical performances prior to it being a cinema because it's massive. There's, there is a giant balcony 
Um, there is an orchestra pit. Like it's a really classic old giant single screen movie house, beautifully restored. I believe Peter has a lot to do with its restoration, certainly from a sonic standpoint. Um, in fact, I think he has everything to do with putting Dolby Atmos in there, uh, which I think it has now. I could be wrong about that. But <laughs> that theater was, was incredible. There's also the Rialto in Wellington that we would go to. And then eventually, you know, sort of in the main center of town, a kind of giant multiplex opened up. So that would functionally, you would sort of go see the big multiplex movies or whatever there. But the embassy holds a special place in my heart just because it's, it's one of those great classic old movie houses. And we also premiered, I mean, Pete has premiered, I think, for all of the Wellington premieres of his film since Rings, everything at that cinema. Um, our New Zealand premiere of, can't remember if it was Fellowship of Two Towers, was there. Um, and just incredible, an incredible, beautiful, old, you know, glorious cinema. Um, and I'm not sure what they play now. Uh, I, it's been a while since I've been back to New Zealand. It's been about seven years, um, way too long. Uh, so I'm not sure what, whether they're a, um, a rep house or if they're, if they're playing like first run films or what the situation is. But feels to me like you need to take a trip after, after. I really do. I really do. Another, another thing that I know this is a conversation about cinema specifically, but yeah. I, I have to shout out in Wellington because I actually didn't go to the movies a lot, would rent videos a lot. And there's a great video rental store called Arrow Street Video that outside of Vidiots maybe in LA, in terms of just my own experience, there's plenty of incredible video stores around the world um, that are there are, you know, people's own kind of connective tissue to being introduced to all kinds of cinema. Um, Outside of maybe Vidiots for me, Arrow Street was just one of those extraordinary stores. Like, you, you know it when you walk in to a store like that. You walk in, you're like, oh, fuck, they've got these movies, you know? <laughs> They're highlighting these strange genre movies from yeah. Europe. Or, you know what I mean? You just you see things on the wall that you're like, oh, I know where I'm at. I, I, get, <laughs> I'm home. I get that I'm in a place where people really are excited about movies and have a specific particular interest in, you know, the wide breadth of, of what movies can do. And that, that store was one of those stores and it, it still remains to this day. That's it's amazing. And I think they operate partially online too, and they've pivoted their business and managed to, to stay afloat, which is awesome. That is wild. Um, you've hit upon something there in terms of, you know, film is a community and to film loving as a community and the act of going to the cinema is a communal experience. You know, that electric feeling you get when a movie is clicking and you can really, really feel it. Uh, so I've been asking everybody on this limited edition series about some specifics. So, for example, is there a movie that, that springs to your mind that might be the funniest movie you've ever seen in the cinema or, or the, the greatest comedy experience you've had? <laughs> um, whoa. The greatest comedy experience I've had in a cinema. Mm -hmm. um, uh, weirdly, that one doesn't come to mind. No. Yeah, weirdly, uh, comedies don't really spring to mind when I think of going to the cinema because I don't, I don't often go see comedies. 
and I love comedies, um, but there isn't one that really sticks out. You're a big horror guy, though. So is there, is there a horror experience that is stuck in your head? Yeah, I'll never forget seeing Let the Right One In for the first time. That was, oh, there's a few, actually. There's a few. Let the Right One In, which I saw in Austin at the Alamo as a, um, it had been featured at Fantastic Fest and occasionally what Fantastic Fest will do is they'll, they'll run a couple of their movies for general consumption after. That was something that they had kind of done. And that was one of the films that was featured at the fest. And they, they did do a couple of screenings. So I went and saw it. And that was just, and still remains one of my favorite of the last 20 years. Just, you know, where it's, a, it's, a, it's not really a horror movie. It's a, it's a movie that tends to, that plays within the vampire milieu, but it's really about this friendship. I just found that so powerful. And it shows you what, what, is, what is possible, I think, with, with horror is not always this thing of having to lean on the genre elements and scare people in the traditional ways. Like there, you can tell emotional stories. You can tell different kinds of stories within the framework of what one considers a horror movie. And that, that movie was really inspirational. Um, I'll never forget also, because it was fucking traumatic. I'll never <laughs> forget seeing Hereditary in, in I, I, I happened to be at Sundance. Uh, I can't remember why we were there. We, I think we had a film in the festival and got a ticket to see the midnight for hereditary and heard things about it, but didn't really know what it was. And man, that was midnight at the Egyptian was so traumatic and effective and upsetting. <laughs> that was yep. in the best way. Uh, I'll never forget seeing that movie. Did you know what was coming? No. One scene nope. in particular I'm, I'm thinking of. Nope. <laughs> Nope, did not know. It was really upsetting. And, and, and I'll share one more anecdote that isn't a theatrical experience, but it's apropos given, mm -hmm. given its life. Of course. I saw a VHS copy of the Blair Witch Project, which had just premiered at Sundance, but it was still percolating and it hadn't like come out yet. And I, I got a copy of it and I watched it on TV on VHS. That was pretty effective as well. Also, honestly, Paranormal Activity, seeing that in the cinema, which at the time they were doing this funny thing where they weren't, it wasn't wide release. Do you remember this? Where, I don't know if they did this in the UK, okay. but in the US, they, they did a thing where part of their, it was brilliant marketing, actually. Part of their hype was doing these midnight screenings across the US, then they cut together a video package of people's reactions to the film as a sort of part of the promotion. Right. And then you had to go online and like opt in and say that you wanted it to play in your city or something. Right. So they, they were getting, they were getting this like fever pitch of anticipation for the movie that wasn't wide, but it was only playing at these select cities at select times. And I happened to be in New York at the time and it, it happened to be playing and I went to a, like a nine o'clock or a 10 o'clock screening with that same, because I'd seen these commercials of people like losing it at this movie. And there was just this, that's really rare now. It's rare that you see something that you're building this sort of level of, it made me think of like what it must've been like to see the exorcist at the time prior to it having come out. And this kind of like them building on that fear. And there are, there were video packages at the time of people ex, you know, exiting a theater and asking them how they felt and people yeah. like 
I vomited and like, I can't handle it anymore. I, I had to leave the cinema and that getting people really excited. And they did a very similar thing with Paranormal Activity, the first one when it came out. And it was it was electric, man. That theater was fucking packed at a very late hour. And it was so electric, that feeling. And that's a really hard thing to replicate in a cinematic experience, especially nowadays. So yeah, that I'll, I'll never forget that. That's so tough. It's it's so great when you feel it as well. I, I genuinely thought for a second there you were going to say, you know, those videos they do of people reacting to this the, to the film and they're screaming and they use it in the promotion. I thought you were going to say you were in that that they had taken oh, footage of you. No, no, I wasn't. <laughs> Elijah is someone watching it at home going, "Is that Elijah Wood losing his shit at Paranormal Activity?" <laughs> That would have been fun. That would have been fun. But we've got to wrap it up in, in two seconds. I oh. want to ask two. I know I could talk to you about cinema all day, man, but uh, but uh, I'm going to ask two real quick last questions. So yeah. you've talked about the cinemas that, that mean so much to you now and, and you know, the, your formative experience. But what was the cinema that, that, that turned you on in, to, to films in the first place you know, growing up? I actually don't have a connection to any cinema that I would have would have gone to in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is where I was born. So I don't, yeah, I don't have any connection to those, those theaters. It would have probably been at a local mall. Like I don't remember there being okay. certainly not a movie house in that would be an independent one. And then we moved to Los Angeles. The whole family moved to Los Angeles when I was quite young. So it's about eight, seven, eight when we moved here. So honestly, the, the Chinese theater was a big one. Yeah which seems unfair because it's this kind of, you know, behemoth um, towering giant of, of cinema movie houses that people are familiar with. But that I remember going to, to see um, Indiana Jones and the last crusade with my mom at the Chinese theater. Like that, that theater was pretty incredible. And it was, it was a lot of things at once, right? It was like young kid coming to Los Angeles for the first time and, experiencing this big city with palm trees and, and, you know, all of the sort of ephemera of what, you know, you imagine Los Angeles to be. And then there's the, the, the Grauman's Chinese theater, this extremely famous theater that were housed countless premieres dating back to the 1930s mm. as a movie theater that we could go and watch movies, you know, with the handprints and the footprints out front. Like there, there was something of almost like a theme park aspect of going to the cinema when you went there. Still, to this day, it feels that way, um, albeit with a major restoration for sound and picture. Um, but man, it, yeah. So that that, you know, I suppose a little unfairly, that particular theater was a was a big one for me when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, okay. um, and then as a teenager, weirdly, it was like AM, you know, the, the a couple of theaters when I was a teenager that were very, very sort of um uh, instrumental in my growth would be the Lemley, what it was the Lemley Sunset Five, which doesn't exist anymore. I think it's an AMC now, but Lemley still is a, a theater group and has theaters across the city. But the Lemley Sunset Five was uniquely situated because I could drive from the valley. I lived in, in Sherman Oaks sort of area at the mm. time, and I could drive over Laurel Canyon and it was right there, right above the Virgin Megastore. So you'd get a, a, a it was sort of like a, a double experience. You'd go see a movie and then at the end of the movie, you'd go to the Virgin Megastore and like buy CDs or like look at books and DVDs. It was the best. It was the best. And the Lemley 
would play art house cinema and independent movies and foreign films. So it really was sort of like the building blocks of a, of a larger palette uh, of my cinema growth. And then also there was an AMC <laughs> in Glendale, I think, that okay. I saw uh, Eyes Wide Shut there with my sister. I saw... I remember seeing uh, Mulholland Drive at that AMC. So that that AMC also provided a lot of incredible formative entertainment for me. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, I've got to let you go with one last question. One last yeah. question. So the pandemic is over. I, Empire, is taking you to the cinema, probably the Alamo Draft House. Uh, put your money away, Elijah. Your money's no good here. I'm paying for the tickets. I'm also paying for your snacks. We're at the concession stand. What do you want? Um, oh, if I'm going for it, because mm-hmm. I don't often get snacks, but if I'm going for it, uh, I love a I love a hot dog. <laughs> so if it's if there's a hot dog, I'll have like a, a I can't pass up a movie hot dog with mustard, um, maybe some jalapenos. So that I'll eschew the popcorn. Probably okay. do like just a water and maybe raisinets if they have them and actually the combination of raisinets and popcorn if you throw the raisinets in there and you get like the saltiness of the popcorn with the sweetness of the chocolate and the raisins is a pretty incredible combination that's next level combination right there that is that's <laughs> that's pretty bold oh by the way i forgot to tell you we're watching our Werner herzog uh, triple bill uh so oh my god right we we're gonna have to settle in great yeah we're gonna need popcorn so, for that yeah maybe also uh, a coffee we should also get some coffee that's a long one. It's a long one. We shall, and, and it's it's comedy. Good stuff. You know, you love a bit of Ferner Herzog. Chuckles, chuckles galore with Ferner. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm is sure. It just if it just fits Geraldo on a loop. <laughs> it's just it's exactly that's what it is. That's all it is. Oh god, what, a, what a movie! What a treat! Uh, what a treat lies in store. Uh, let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. All right, uh, Elijah Wood. On that note, I'm going to let you go. It's been a pleasure as always, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Chris, this has been really fun. Thanks so much, man. Cheers, man. Take care. See you. And that was Elijah Wood. Could have talked to him a lot longer, but I had to let other journalists get on in the act, which is monstrously unfair, if you ask me. A reminder that No Man of God is out on digital from Monday, September 13th, and is also going to be out on Blu-ray in this country, in the UK, on the 25th of October. And on that note, that is it, folks, for Celebration of Cinema in association with Meerkat Movies from Compare the Market. Thank you so much to everyone who sent me lovely messages about this series. And thank you, of course, to our incredible guests, Olga Kurylenko, David Arnold, Asim Chowdhury, Simon Pegg, Sparks, and Elijah Wood. I have hugely enjoyed doing this. I'm so glad to see that so many of you have loved listening as well. Who knows? Maybe we'll be back for a second series at some point. Watch this space. In the meantime, I'm off to the cinema and I'm going to order a hot dog, some raisinets and popcorn and a big old pot of coffee. Oh yes, it's about to go off. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.